We're going to talk tonight about something that I hope will help you. Now, I was here, what, a couple months ago? And we talked about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. That's a really important piece of evidence that if it's not true, Christianity's not true, and there's no reason why we should even meet. We should be watching the game instead. So what I want to do is go a little further with you and just talk about why I think it's reasonable for us to believe everything that's in the Gospels, as crazy as that sounds. Because if you think about what's in the Gospels, it's pretty crazy stuff, right? I mean, you've got miraculous events, somebody rising from the dead. Why should you believe any of that? Now, I wasn't somebody who was raised in the church. And most of you know my background, so I don't need to go through all that much detail. But I was somebody who basically didn't have any uh, experience with Christians, except for the few Christians we would take to jail. Because I was working in cold case murders, and I was working other kinds of investigations right up the road here in Los Angeles County. And most of the people I knew who were Christians were either police officers, and if you asked them why Christianity was true, they stunk at giving you an answer. They couldn't even give you, like, give me a reason why you would trust the Bible. Why would you trust any of this thing from this ancient book that's been translated thousands of times over the years? Why would you even trust it? Well, they couldn't tell me. The same people who could make a case for uh, a suspect and five reasons why this is our guy could not tell me five reasons why they could trust Scripture. And the other people we knew who were Christians were the people who were taken to jail. I can remember I watched a guy do a home savings there's a home savings in Lakewood. Is it still there? Do you guys know what I'm talking about, home savings? That, that doesn't even have a home savings. That's how long ago it was. Now, it was a bank in, in Lakewood. And I watched this guy. He was a drug addict. We watched him score dope for like two weeks. I was working undercover. He does a bank robbery. I go in the bank with him. He does the robbery while I'm in there with him. And as soon as he gets out, we start following him and take him to jail. And on the way back to the station, I asked this guy a story, and he was telling me, yeah, you know, I, should, I know better than this. I, I got saved, like, you know, a year ago at a harvest crusade. And I thought, this is Christians right here. Here you go. Either people who don't know why it's true, or people who don't behave as though it's true. And I didn't want to be part of either group. What I'm going to do with you tonight is just talk a little bit about why I, I changed my mind. And I'm going to have to teach you something about the, the rules of evidence so you can see why I think the case for Christianity is pretty good. So let's do a case together, okay? How many of you have heard of this thing called circumstantial evidence? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay, most of the time when you hear it, it's, it's usually lame, right? Like all they have is a circumstantial case. Have you ever heard somebody say that? All they have is a circumstantial. Or it's just circumstantial. It's always said in a negative way. So I want you to know that there are two forms of evidence. There's indirect evidence, that's called circumstantial evidence. And there's direct evidence, And these two are the only forms of evidence there are. And it turns out direct evidence is one kind of evidence. It's eyewitness testimony. Everything else is in the indirect category. So like DNA, indirect. Yeah, fingerprints, indirect. Any kind of material evidence, indirect. Everything is indirect except for eyewitnesses who can tell you what happens. Let's do a case together. Here's a guy who's been accused of killing his girlfriend with that baseball bat, okay? He bludgeoned her to death. Now we can make the case one of two ways. We'll start by making the case directly. That means we have to ask a witness. We could ask him, I suppose, right? We could just say, hey, what happened? You were there, but you wouldn't be able to trust this guy. We need a witness, maybe somebody who is not involved in the crime, somebody who lives across the street. Somebody who can say, yeah, I was, the day of the murder, I was, you know, I'm a neighbor. I live across the street. And this neighbor I have, she's delightful, but she's always arguing with her boyfriend. And so on this particular day, I heard her again. She's screaming at her boyfriend. And I look up through the plate glass window of her living room. I can see that they're having a physical altercation. He punched her in the face. She went to the ground. He got a bat out. He started beating her with the baseball bat. It was horrific. He ran out to his car. He drove off. Really, you saw that guy? He says, yeah. 
Well, do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. You know that guy? Oh, yeah. I've known him for years. They've been dating since they were this tall. This is a very close neighborhood. We all know each other. We do holidays together, you know, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, on the day of the murder, this guy was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. Now, that's a good witness, right? She knows him personally. She saw him do it. He's even wearing clothes that she gave him. Now, if you had this kind of a witness who could stand up during cross-examination, you could do the entire case with one piece of evidence, her eyewitness testimony. That is what is known as a direct evidence case. Got it? Because we're using that eyewitness to make the case. Now, let's change the scenario. What if on the day of the murder, he's not wearing the shirt that she gave him for Christmas? And on the day of the murder, he's got a mask on his head. Let's do that right now. Well, now all she can say is, well, he's about the right size and weight as the person who's, you know, who, who I know as the boyfriend, but I can't tell you for sure because, oh, look, he had a mask on his head. He's, okay, I got it. Now we have to make it differently. We are not going to be able to make this on a single witness. We're going to do something different, indirectly. So let's go out and talk to this guy. We knock on his door. We say, what were you doing on the day of the murder? He gives us an alibi. He says for a couple of hours he was drinking with two of his friends. Really? What are your friends' names? We go out, we talk to them. He's lying. They say they haven't seen him in weeks. So he's lying about his alibi, and he fits the general description. Do you guys think he's our guy? Raise your hand if you think he's our guy. Hey, we're in California. This is not bad. Five or six people raising their hand in California, okay? In California, no one wants to convict anybody. You know that, right? In Texas, he's already on death row, okay? <laughs> Seriously. He's already hooked up. So it's the difference between Texas and California, all right? Now... We have to ask a few more questions. This is probably not good enough to go to trial, so let's ask him another question. Okay, uh, can we do a search warrant at your house? Yeah, we do a search warrant at the house, and in the house we find in one of the closets there's a baseball bat. Well, we got baseball in Southern California, so who's, who cares? There's a baseball bat. But his baseball bat's different. On the thick part of the bat, it's all nicked up and dinged up, like he's been using it for something other than hitting baseballs. Make sense? He's been using it as a club. Now, we do a biological search, right, on the material, the tissue and blood, looking for all that stuff, and it's clean. You know why it's clean? Because he has soaked his bat in bleach. Think about that. Why does anybody, have you ever thought about soaking your baseball bat in bleach, any of your sporting goods in bleach? Why would you do that? Unless you're trying to get rid of biological material. So now we got a bleach bat, a BO alibi, and he fits the general description. Now, there's also a pair of pants in the house that match the description that was offered by the witness. But everyone's got Levi's, but his Levi's are different because his Levi's, we use a chemical called luminol. Luminol, you spray on certain surfaces. If there's blood or fluid, body fluids, it'll luminesce, it'll glow. Also, it'll glow under the presence of certain detergents. And sure enough, these are glowing at the knees. Now, they're dirty, they're all dirty. But they're glowing at the knees, and they're clean at the knees. And so we do a little test for blood, and there's no blood or body fluids. They have been successfully cleaned at the knees, spot cleaned. And by the way, what is he trying to clean? The pants are covered in dirt. If he's trying to clean dirt off the pants, he'd throw the whole thing. No, he's trying to spot clean something off of his knees. What is he trying to clean? Also, um, there's no forced entry at the house. That means whoever got in the house either had a key or knew the victim because there's no kicked door, there's no broken window, no one had to force their way in. That means only a certain number of people would even be capable of doing this crime, right? And it turns out that only three people had a key. She had a key, 
Her mom who passed away a couple months earlier had a key, and the crazy boyfriend had a key, and he'll admit that he's a crazy boyfriend. He does a taped interview, and in the interview he says, yep, I got a bad temper. And she knows it, I love her, but I lose my temper. I don't mean to, but I have yelled at her. I've smacked her a few times, but I don't mean anything by it. I always apologize, and afterwards she always takes me back. I don't like that part of me, but it's just who I am. Yeah, and on the day of the murder, I was pissed, I was mad. I, mean, I found out that day that she was cheating on me. So I lost my temper. I did threaten her in front of her friends. I even smacked her pretty good, but I did not kill her. How many of you right now think this is our guy? It's okay, raise your hand if you think it's our guy. I get it. Let's go a little further. Yep, the witness says he had an unusual pair of boots. Uh, a pair of boots on the side of the outside of the boot it had like a high vertical band on the side. You do a little research, there's only one manufacturer that makes a boot like that. Nobody else makes that kind of boot. Only one store in the entire county sells it. They're not popular. They've sold about 30 pairs in the last couple of years. Who do you think's got a pair of these in his house? Our guy. Now, this is why it's becoming statistically interesting, right? Because oh, he's a one in 30 relationship to the boots. He's a one in three relationship to the key. What are the odds that one of these guys is also one of these guys? Do you see the problem here? These things begin to triangulate. And if you'd have gone a little bit later to the search warrant, he would have been dead because on the day of the search warrant, he was getting ready to kill himself. We know that because at the counter in his house, there is a partially completed suicide note. He was apparently writing it when you were knocking on the door. And in that note, he says he did something horrific yesterday, the day of the murder, although he doesn't say what it is. He says he wishes he could take it back. He lost his temper. He exploded. He's changed the course of his own personal history. He feels terrible about it, and he cannot live with himself. He has decided now he has to kill himself, but nowhere in the note, because you got there too early, he didn't finish it. Nowhere in the note does it say that he killed his girlfriend, but we do have a suicide note. This is not a bad case right now. Now, the witness also says, though, that he was in a particular kind of car. And even in Southern California, these cars are not all that well-known. You may have seen this before. When we asked her, well, what was it? like an early 70s, like a yellow-colored Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Do you guys even know what a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia looks like? No. Raise your hand if you know what that looks like. Raise your hand. You're either in a car aficionado or just an old guy. That's what it comes down to, right? <laughs> Am I right? We know what that is. We actually wanted to own one of those cars, okay? But nobody else here does. That's how old we are. But sure enough, you do a DMV search, there's only like two or three operational Carmen Guias in the county. They don't say what color the car is on the DMV search. But sure enough, when you go to his house and you raise the garage door, what do you think he's got in the garage? He's got a 1972 Canary Yellow Volkswagen Carmen Guia. They look like that. Now, look, at this point, I think we could ask this question. Isn't it still possible that he is innocent? Yes, of course, because anything and everything is possible. And that's why the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt, because I could always offer a possible doubt. It's possible you're not even here right now. You haven't been anywhere today. You've been sleeping all day. You're still in bed right now imagining this, or you could be in the matrix. This could all be a computer simulation. That's possible, but it's not reasonable, and that's why we only operate on what's reasonable, and that's why the standard of proof is not up here. It's here by, based on what's reasonable. And the question here is not whether that's possible. It's whether or not that's reasonable. Now, look, defense attorneys are very good at doing this. Oh, Jim, I can explain this some other way over here, and I can explain this some other way over here, and I can exp I just had a case with Robert Shapiro from O.J. Simpson fame, right? He's very good at this. Oh, I can explain this some way over here. Okay, great. That's, that's possible. 
It's possible that we have eight unrelated explanations that just happen to perfectly align, the stars are perfectly aligned to make him look incredibly guilty when he's not, or the more reasonable explanation is that he is the common causal factor that explains all of the evidence and even unifies the evidence. Why? Because he is guilty, which is more reasonable. Now, we did all of this without an eyewitness. This is all done with indirect evidence. This is a circumstantial case. That makes sense? That is the difference. I'm leading with something. Just be patient with me. Now, the reason why I like these cases even better than direct evidence cases is a couple of reasons. Look, in the end, it, it, I, I wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, right? And I drew it. Uh, my background's kind of weird. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. That's what it was. It was torture. So I call it architecture. Okay. <laughs> And then I left all that and, and became a police officer and then eventually became a detective. So I get to draw my own illustrations. That's about what comes out of an art degree. And so this is my illustration from Cold Case Christianity. And I want you to see that this is how we build circumstantial cases. I call it, and by the way, I wouldn't just do it with eight pieces of evidence in a criminal trial because eight wouldn't be enough. I have 80 pieces of evidence, all that point to the same suspect. That's why I call these cases death by a thousand paper cuts. Because one of these might not seem like much. It's one paper cut. But if you have enough paper cuts, you're in trouble, okay? That's why this is an important way to build a case. Now, I do like these cases better than, uh, than direct evidence cases for a couple of reasons. Number one, judges instruct jurors all the time that these two forms of evidence are to be considered the exact same way. Here's the jury instruction in California. It says basically this. Hey, both direct and circumstantial evidence are acceptable types of evidence, and neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other. So stop calling these cases just circumstantial. Unless you're willing to say all they have is a direct evidence case, which you wouldn't say. These are important. By the way, I also like these cases better. You know why? Because witnesses lie all the time. Now, I may misinterpret a direct, an indirect evidence case, but it's not because those eight pieces of evidence are trying to deceive me. Witnesses often do. So I learned a long time ago, never, ever, 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 ever trust an eyewitness. They are not to be trusted. They will burn you down every time. Do not trust eyewitnesses. You don't trust eyewitnesses. You test eyewitnesses. Now, if they pass the test, you are instructed by the judge to trust them. What's the test? Well, it turns out we have 14 questions we allow jurors to consider, right? I'll make it easy for you. There are these four categories. If the eyewitness passes the test in these four categories, you are instructed to trust them. Well, to make it easier, it basically comes down to this. If a witness was really there, present, to see what he said he saw, if he can be corroborated in some way, if he's been honest and accurate over time, hasn't changed his story, and finally, if he's not biased, you are instructed to trust him. I started to think, as an atheist at 35, looking at the Bible for the very first time, could I evaluate the gospel authors under this test? And if I did, would they pass? I think they actually do pass, but I want to show you briefly what I discovered, okay? The first question, of course, is were they really there to see what they said they saw? Look, this is a guy right here. He killed a 10-year-old girl in our city. This is the Daily Breeze, if you're from Torrance area. Do you guys know where Torrance is? Okay, we have a paper called the Daily Breeze. Not a great paper, but it's there. And this is from 1974. This is my dad. Yeah, he was a cop before me. He's walking this guy across to the courtroom. This guy confessed to killing a 10-year-old girl in our city in 1972 on Thanksgiving Day. 
stole her right off the street. We didn't find her till the next day up in uh, Oxnard. God bless you. And sure enough, it's a gruesome testimony. It's a gruesome uh, transcript. I, I had it transcribed, this confession, and it's, it's a thousand pages. Everything he did to her and then how he finally killed her and then what he got to do with her body, it's not fun to read. None of it is true. He made the whole thing up. This lady here, he got more attention from this detective here and this detective here than he'd ever gotten from anyone in his entire life. But he wasn't present on the day of the murder. You can't be the murderer if you weren't there. But you also can't be an eyewitness if you weren't there. And sometimes people will give themselves away because they weren't really there. That was my suspicion about the Gospels. Look, you have this event called the ministry of Jesus. And then years later, there's a church council where early Christians came together and said, hey, which accounts should we trust as reliable describing the life and ministry of Jesus? And this is called the Council of Laodicea. Look at the date. That's 330 years after the event. That's a long time. If the Gospels were written over here in history... They're too late in history. You can't, they're not written by eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses have been dead for 300 years. And a lot of skeptics believe that the Gospels were written late. I believe that the Gospels were written late. That's how, by the way, you can lie about Jesus. The easiest way to lie about Jesus is to wait till everyone who knew Jesus is dead. Then you can say anything you want to say. No one can tell you you're a liar. So if they're late, then you can't trust them. Also, if you want to lie, write it out of the region. Write it out someplace where no one knows who Jesus is. That's a good way to write lies about Jesus. So the question is, are they written... By the way, the skeptics I'm talking about are people like Bart Ehrman, who has written a number of books. He's, he's one of the best-read biblical scholars in North America, and he's not a Christian, he's an atheist. And he writes against the claims of Christianity. And if skeptics like this are right, and they're written this late in history, we should not be meeting here tonight, we should be watching the game. Now, of course, if they're written over here, somewhere, if they're any time they start to get closer and closer to the events, if they're down here, well, then we can at least pass the first test. They would have been written early enough to have been written by people who actually knew Jesus and written in front of people who actually knew Jesus so they would know if they were lies. So the question is, are they early? I'm going to build a circumstantial case. That's why I taught you about circumstantial evidence. Are you ready? Because you already know the answer if you think about it. Do you guys know that book written by Luke? It describes uh, the life of the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's called the book of Acts. Okay, great. Does Luke ever mention in the book of Acts, does he ever mention the destruction of the temple? Right? Never mentions it. He never mentions it, yet it's a pretty horrific event. The, the Roman guards came in. They surrounded the city. They there was a siege that occurred prior. And by the way, Luke never mentions this. Look, if Luke says that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and that's in all the Gospels, why wouldn't you at least show that the temple was destroyed? It makes Jesus look like an accurate predictor, right? No, it's missing. And the siege is missing. This is so horrific that it, they, the Romans came in. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that when the Roman guards came in, the centuries came in, and they, the centurions came in, and they, they, they captured the city. They eventually blockaded it, starved everyone for a couple of years, knocked down the walls, took the city. When they got inside, people were so starving, they found one mother was eating the son who just passed away from starvation. She was eating him to stay alive. Now, why would you leave those kinds of details out of the book of Acts? It'd be like writing a history of New York City and leaving out the Twin Tower attacks. We'd at least ask, why would you leave them out? That's what's happening here. Also, you know, Paul is alive at the end of the book of Acts, right? 
He's in captivity in Rome. Well, we know when he was martyred, why wouldn't you mention his death? Why wouldn't you mention the death of Peter? Why wouldn't you mention the death of James, the brother of Jesus? He dies in 61. Look, Luke mentions the death of other people in the group. He mentions the death of Stephen. He mentions the death of James, the brother of John. He dies in 44. And I'm telling you, James, the brother of John, is a nobody. But James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the biggest church centered in Jerusalem. Why would you not mention his death if you're mentioning the other guy? Well, I think we can look at this and ask that of all these events. Why would you leave all this stuff out? Well, you can't write about it if it hasn't happened yet. So we can kind of test that theory. Let's put the writing of the book of Acts just one year prior to the first missing event. I could have easily put it 10 years prior, but I'm going to put it one year prior, okay? That's to be conservative. Now, we're going to test this. Now, you know that he wrote two books, right? Luke, this is not a trick question. What's the other book that Luke wrote? Luke. Two people know the answer to that question. Okay, which one did he write first? Which one? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you. He wrote Luke first. And we only know that because he says this to us in the first verse of the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken into heaven. So he's talking about the gospel of Luke. Now, I've dated Luke over here at 53. Why? A couple of internal pieces of evidence that you might have been reading over and never even noticed them. I'm going to show them to you tonight. Here's one in Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, take care of your church leaders. They deserve to be compensated for their hard work. And I know that, Timothy, because my Bible tells me so. Really? Would you like to know what Paul's using as a Bible this early in history? Because he's going to quote from his Bible to Timothy. He says, Timothy, the scripture says two things. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 25. But this second verse is not from the Old Testament. That verse is from the New Testament. That verse is from the gospel of Luke. So now we've got him quoting the gospel of Luke early, but not that early, to Timothy. And he's calling it scripture. So we know that it's out there. So now let's take a look at another reason why I put it at 53. He wrote another book, another letter to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church, he's a train wreck of a church. This church is like off the rails, okay? They're sleeping with their family members. They're getting drunk before the Lord's Supper. He's writing to them to say, hey, time out. I taught you better than that. Knock that stuff off, number one. And number two, I'm going to tell you how to do the Lord's Supper again. And he recites to them a passage of the Lord's Supper. And guess where he got that from? Yeah, Luke. Luke's gospel. That's a much bigger piece of Luke's gospel from Luke chapter 22. And he's quoting it early in history and saying, remember how I taught you? When are you teaching that? We think that, uh, that Paul planted this church around 51. So when he planted the church in 51, he taught them this, and now he's having to remind them. So how early is this scripture? It's pretty early. And, and here's another thing I want you to see, because every word matters to detectives, which my daughters hate. I have a daughter now, she's 20, and one is 21. The 20-year-old hates this. She's actually an MP in the Marine Corps. She just got stationed yesterday at Pendleton, so now I'm stuck with her every weekend for three years. <laughs> Worse than that, I realized today, because what's today, Sunday? I realized today I'm not just stuck with her. I'm stuck with every Marine she can apparently bring home, because it's a house full of Marines when I left there just a minute ago. It's crazy. <laughs> so she used to hate this rule I used to have, because I used to always say, hey, before you say anything, Mia, remember every word you're about to say, I'm going to hold against you. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Remember also, though, but every word you could have chosen but didn't choose, I'm also going to hold that against you. Now you can speak. And then she just said, I'm just going to tell you what happened, because what's the point? 
So here's my, I want you to see this because words do matter to detectives. This is the first verse of Luke's gospel. He's not an eyewitness. Luke is an investigator. He's a detective who is speaking to the eyewitnesses. But look at what he says. These are important. Look at the key words. By the way, when you're doing a detective work, you're looking at the optional words, the words that people have a choice about. That kind of gives them away. And those are typically adverbs and adjectives. You never need to use those words. If you're going to include them, I'm going to learn something about you. So look at the adjectives and adverbs in the second sentence. He says he's talking to the, and interviewing the eyewitnesses. He says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, look at the three key words here that are important. The first one is the word carefully. Can you see it there? Why use that word? You don't need to. It's an adverb, so it's an optional word. Well, sometimes people will put a sign. Uh, for example, have you ever seen, look, if you see a, a street corner or a street and there's a big no parking here sign, why do they put that there? Because someone's been parking there. So it's usually a good sign that there's something they're responding to. So why is he saying that his is careful? Well, there might be an, another early first century account that's not as careful, and this is what distinguishes his account from that account. That's one way to see this. And there is another early first century account that's not as careful. It's called the Gospel of Mark. Much shorter account. Here's another uh, optional word. This uh, title, Most Excellent. A lot of times you'll see this applied to Roman leaders. So we're not quite sure if Theophilus is somebody important. We're not quite sure who he is. But that's an interesting optional word. In this sentence, there's one more optional word. It's this adverb here, orderly. It's an adjective. It's an orderly account. It's an orderly account. That word in the Greek means it's in the right chronological order. Really? Why would you need to tell me that? You're writing a history of Jesus, and you tell me it's in the right order? Like, duh. I mean, it starts with the birth of Jesus. It ends with the ascension. I can kind of figure out that it's probably in the right No, no. He's going to tell us this is in the right chronological order. Why would he do that? Could be the same reason why he's doing this. There's another early account out there that's not in the right order. Did you know that? It's called the Gospel of Mark. Papias is a bishop. He says that Mark is writing his account at the feet of Peter, but Mark is not being all that careful about order. In fact, Papias says that Mark's account is accurate, if not orderly, uses the same Greek word. That's why when you compare these two accounts, they're not in the same order. What's the deal going on there? Well, because Luke has interviewed all these, and who does he quote more than any other source? Word for word often, Mark. He's got Mark's stuff in here, but now it's in the right order. But that means that Mark's stuff's got to be available to him. And that puts Mark's account first. Do you see what we just did? So we started over here at the end, and we worked backwards with circumstantial evidence. I think we have a good inference. This is way too early. We can ask any questions you want at the end about that, but I just want you to see. This is too early. But it doesn't mean it's true. It may just be an early lie. Timelines tell us something in criminal work. We're trying to figure out, is the suspect available to commit this crime? Here what we're doing is asking, is the author available to really be an eyewitness? Make sense? Let's go another step. I'm going to skip the second one, only because this is like an hour. I do this class at Biola. It takes me 17 hours to teach this class. So if you're wondering if you wanted evidence of God's existence, I could spend 17 hours with you tonight. But I'm not going to. Therefore, God exists, okay? I just proved it. So for the rest of you, if you have any questions about God's existence. But I will skip this section. This section here is about probably about an hour and a half. But I'll show it to you, okay, so you can see it at the end. 
And uh, so it's available online, too. I have all my stuff online. You can watch it there. I want to go to this one. This is where I was really kind of concerned as an atheist, though. I always believed that whatever we had, it was not accurate because it probably had been changed over time. And I've done a bunch of cases where guys got in trouble, not because they left me any good evidence. They just changed their story repeatedly. Like this guy, he killed his wife in 1981, and I had no physical evidence. We didn't even work it as a homicide for the first six years. It was a missing persons. So we had no physical evidence, no crime scene, none of it. We didn't think it was a murder. And then when we first started working it, we were way behind the curve. But lucky for us, he changed his story repeatedly, and that's what gave him away. After we, we convicted him, and at the sentencing hearing, he also confessed to doing it and gave us the location of the body. So we, we did eventually get a confession. My point, though, is we didn't know how he did it. And we didn't have anything other than his changing story. I kind of assumed the same thing could be happening with the Gospels. Look, you have this event. Okay, something is being written about Jesus over here. Fine. Then something makes it into your Bible years later. Fine. I don't even care if you could argue that it's early. Yeah, it was written really early. But how do I know that the Jesus that was described early wasn't altered over time? until he was something really different. Maybe he was just a preaching rabbi in the beginning. That's all he ever really was. Just another ancient sage, a teacher, but he never walked on water. He never did those miracles. He never rose from the dead. That's the stuff that was added to the Jesus story over the years, the legend that grew and grew and grew until the simple Jesus of Nazareth became the Christ of Christianity. And by the way, that's exactly what Bart thinks happened, Bart Ehrman. He's written a book about that called How Jesus Became God because it's exactly what he thinks happened. Now, is that true? Something similar happens at crime scenes, right? I have a crime scene and then 30 years later, I'm finally in trial and I'm going to bring a piece of evidence into trial. I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I got this important piece of, here it is. It's a casing. Do you guys see it? 30 years later, I'm going to bring it into trial. I'm going to tell you, you know what? There's an extractor pin mark on that 45 caliber casing and that extractor pin mark, it matches the extractor the extractor pin, in the suspect's gun. It leaves a particular kind of mark. And these match. So this is an important piece of evidence that identifies that casing to my suspect. Really? How do I know that? How do, how do I know? Why should I believe that that extractor pin mark you're showing me today was on that casing 30 years ago? For all I know, some detective pulled it out of property 10 years later, etched the extractor pin mark on it, put it back in property, and now you make it look like it belonged to that gun. But hey, it's been altered. And the people who follow him, they have no idea. The crime lab worked it like it was a legitimate piece of evidence. And by the time you got it, you thought it was legitimate too, Mr. Cold Case Detective. But this thing is never, was never like that in the beginning. It was altered years later. Do you see the problem with that? Couldn't the same thing have happened down here? I got some story of Jesus. Let's say the Gospel of John. At some point, it gets into our canon of Scripture. But how do I know how many times it was changed here? How many? One person changed it? In the copy? A hundred people changed it? A thousand times? It's got 300 years to be changed. And by the time they finally drag it in, these guys have no idea that it was changed all those times. They think it's legitimate. But just like this guy, he's been fooled because something happened over here. Do you see the claim? Do you see why that's pretty powerful? I think I can understand. That's why I felt, that's what I actually believed happened. Because there's no way this resurrection thing happened. There's no way those miracles happened. Well, let me tell you how we, we sort this out in criminal cases. So we ask a question, okay, back here in 1980, was there a guy, like a detective or maybe an officer who first arrived at the scene who saw that casing? 
Well, yeah. Okay, did you take a picture of it? Like a Polaroid? Do you guys know what a Polaroid is? They have Fuji cameras that are close to Polaroids now. Did you know that? You can buy them, right? You guys know this, this, this Polaroid? It comes out, it develops in your hand. Right? You know that one, right? Hipsters are in the Yeah, exactly. So how many of you guys have seen that one? Raise your hand if you've seen that one. Okay, let me test your, how, how, how old you are in the room. Are you ready? How about this one? Yeah, because if you, did, if you touched it before it dried back in the old days, it would mess it up. So you couldn't touch it until it dried. So how many of you guys know that one? Actually used that camera, raise your hand. Smaller group. How about this one? Yeah, it used to have a top. Yeah, you had to pull the top off, and then it would dry. If you used that kind of camera, raise your hand. We're down to like three people. Okay, how about this one? Ready? We used to put the solution on the actual picture. Anybody use that kind of camera here? Raise your hand. I'm the only one? Time for me to stop and, yeah, time for me to stop doing this. Okay, so here we go. Polaroid. Take a Polaroid. Did he write a report? In the report, does it mention the extractor pin mark? Does the picture show the extractor pin mark? Now, he's going to give it to somebody. Sometimes my dad would take another Polaroid. Back in the day, he'd take another Polaroid because you couldn't wait forever for these 35-millimeter films to be you know, developed. So you take your own Polaroid you could use the next day. Or he writes a report re- describing what he received from that officer. When he eventually takes it into the crime lab, they're going to write a report in which they describe what they got from the detective. And by the time I come and play, I'm going to write a report in which I describe what I pick up. So now I've got image after image after image, report after report after report. Over the years, all of those reports better describe that extractor pin mark. And if that extractor pin mark is in every one of those reports, I'm okay. Because these people are like links in a chain connecting the past to the present. And that's why we call this process the chain of custody. And every significant piece of evidence in a criminal trial will have to show the chain of custody. Do you think there's a New Testament chain of custody? Yeah, I'll show you one. So here's our crime scene. Here's our courtroom. First officer at the crime scene is a dude named John. He takes a Polaroid of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of John. But how do we know what's in there? Well, who's the next officer he gave it to? We do know who John's personal students were, because he had three, Ignatius, Papias, and Polycarp. He described what he saw to these three men. If you didn't know what John wrote about in his gospel, if you lost that gospel, you could just ask these officers, what did he tell you? But how would we know how to ask that? Well, lucky for us, they became leaders in the local church, and they wrote letters to local congregations describing what they had learned from John. They still exist, although you may not be aware of them. We have seven letters from Ignatius in which he's quoting from a number of New Testament books. We don't have anything from Papias that survives, but we do have one letter to the church at Philippi from Polycarp. You can now look at these letters and read them and see if the picture of Jesus is significantly different. Is he less? Is he less, you know, supernatural? Was he not born of a virgin, didn't work any miracles, he just preached a little bit? We want to know, what do these guys say they learned from John? Now, two of these guys had another student. Ignatius and Polycarp had a student named Irenaeus, and he wrote a ton of stuff. He even made a list of 24 New Testament books that he was using with his students. So don't let anyone tell you that the canon of Scripture is decided by some church council in the 4th century. That's not true. It is quoted immediately 
It is written down 200 years before church council. The council simply confirm what's already in use. They don't create the canon. Does that make sense? Now, Irenaeus has got a student. His name is Hippolytus. He gets in some trouble. I actually think Origen is a student of Hippolytus, but I'll leave that out for now. Let's just stop it right there. But actually, remember, in a chain of custody, what really matters is the first links in the chain. If the first links are like the last links in the chain, you're good to go. Make sense? Now, I, I wrote this in the book, and I drew it this way. This is another chain of custody from Paul all the way through to Tatian. And here's a chain of custody from Peter, all the heel to toe, teacher, student, teacher, student, teacher, student, teacher, student, all the way to Eusebius. That's at the time of the council, so we're good to go there. Now, if you lost everything that we have, we call canon, that's all the work of Paul, all the work of Peter, John, Mark, Matthew, all you had were the officers, the first officers in the chain of custody after these guys, would Jesus be any different? No. He's exactly the same in every detail. Born of a virgin, worked miracles, preached great sermons, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, see at the right hand of the Father. Everything you think you know about Christianity is exactly the same and the very first officers. So this doesn't change. It's early and it never changes. Let's go to the last piece. How do we know if these people are telling us the truth? Are they so biased that they just want to lie to us? Bias always comes down to motive. What is driving your bias, right? What is motivating you to be biased? We have a, a, a bar in our town, it's still there. It's called The Crest. It's a biker bar right downtown Torrance. And any new guy who's a trainee, his field training officer, his FTO, is going to answer the call here for bar fight. I don't care where you're working in the city. If there's a bar fight here, they're going to dispatch the training car. And my son is now an FTO. My son's working there now, my other son. So I got two sons. One's actually working as a police officer about five years now. He's a field training officer. And he knows when you go, you take your trainee to these calls. You know why? Because number one, there's a bar fight. And you want to see if your trainee can handle himself. So you're going to go there and the FTO gets out of the car. This is exactly what the FTO does. You ready? He gets out of the car and he does this. To see if this guy can fight this guy. Now, if he needs help, he'll jump in. But if he doesn't need any help, he won't jump in. Because if you can't handle a bar fight, we're going to fire you, basically. So we want to know, should we fire this guy? The other thing we're going to do also is see, can this guy figure out who the liar is? Because when you get there, there's two drunk guys fighting with each other, right? And one drunk guy says, he started, he should go to jail. And this drunk guy says, he started, he should go to jail. Who goes to jail, by the way? They both go to jail. That's right. That's right. Because they're two drunk liars, number one. And they're drunk in public, which is also good for us. They're going to go to jail, Okay. So the point is you have to figure out that people lie for reasons. You know, it turns out there's only three reasons why anyone lies. Did you know that? They're the same three reasons why anyone commits a murder. There are only three reasons. Three reasons why anyone commits a theft. Any crime, any sin you've ever committed, you only committed for these three reasons. This is it. These are the only things that ever motivate any bad behavior. So it makes it easy, right? Because when you get into a death scene, you go, how, who, who, there's a thousand reasons why this girl might be killed. No, there's not a thousand reasons. There are three. You find me someone in one of those three categories, we're good. So what are the three categories? You ready? These are the three reasons why anyone does anything bad. The first is pretty simple. It's financial greed. Money is behind a lot of stupid. Would you agree? So we kind of know these kinds of crimes, right? People want to do anything, right, to be, to be rich. The other one is sexual or relational desire, lust. That's behind a lot of stupid, too. 
Have you just, can you just think about the last couple of weeks, all the scandalous things we've been reading about the people in Hollywood have been doing or in politics have been doing or even pastors do? What, what drives that? A lot of times it's these two things. The third thing, though, is I think even more powerful and it's much more nuanced, and that is the pursuit of power. Because sometimes it's about, well, murder, for example, if, if one gangster shoots another gangster, why does that happen? Because he disrespected me. It's about authority, respect, power. Don't disrespect me. Now, we can, if we know that these are the only three reasons why anyone ever does anything wrong, also the only three reasons why anyone ever lies, couldn't we apply this to the, the apostles now? And ask this question. Okay, if this is a lie, I get it. People think it's a lie. No problem. Why are they lying? This is the only reason why anyone lies. So what are they getting out of this? Are they getting like money out of this? Are they getting rich? Got a house there in Newport? Are they getting like, you know, getting lucky here? Getting girlfriends? What's the deal? Is that happening? Seriously. Does anybody even in this room so far think that it's either of the first two? No. But a lot of people, skeptics, think it's the third one. Because at least they would be like leaders in this young religious community. They were nobody before. And then they became somebody by telling this tale. That's what a lot of skeptics think. Now think about that for a minute. So Paul, who wrote almost, I mean, the vast majority of the New Testament books and letters are Paul's work. You're telling me that Paul, what's Paul driven by? Is he money or girlfriends or power? You're going to say it's power for Paul? Paul, who started off in a position of religious authority and respect as a religious Jew of the highest order, who had the ability to draw papers to execute Christians, that Paul decides one day, I'm going to jump out of this position of authority and power and respect I have and jump in with these Christians and get my butt kicked all over the known planet for the whole world for, for what, 30 years? And hoping to someday return to the position I already held? That's possible. But is that reasonable? Now, remember, if you're a leader in the Christian community in the first century, you don't have any power. You can't even control the way you die. You're like the deer in this cartoon here. That's a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Look at that thing. <laughs> right? Oh, that thing's on your forehead. Because this is how these folks were targeted. I don't know if you've ever read much about the, the deaths of the disciples. And some of this is more reliable than others. But what we do know is that none of these folks ever change their story regardless of what they suffered. Now think about that for a second. If you said to me today, I am willing to die for what I believe is a Christian, how much evidential power would that have? Zero. Because there's lots of people who will die for what they don't know is a lie. But if you're one of these guys, you'd be one of the few people who would know if it's a lie. If you're willing to die for it, that's totally different. That has high evidential power because you're one of the people who would actually know. And we know what happened to these guys. And for what? What do they get out of it? Nothing in those three areas for sure. Last thing I want to leave with tonight is something that drives me crazy whenever I hear it. And it's this idea that we don't have a good case. Well, what is a good case? We started with this case, right? This case of this guy. We made a case. Do you trust what he's telling us? No, I don't think so. For all these reasons, I wouldn't trust him. But now we're going to turn a corner and ask the question about the disciples. Can we trust what has been said in the Gospels about Jesus? Well, we're going to build this case the same way we build other circumstantial cases, and, but we're going to do it on four different legs. The first one is, is it early enough so that you actually could have been written by eyewitnesses in front of other people who would also have been eyewitnesses? I think we've got more than enough good evidence to infer that this is early enough. 
Now, we didn't talk about anything in this category. This is that verification corroboration. There's tons of internal and external support that I could have offered this entire you know, section of the book. And I've got a video online. You can look at this in, on YouTube. I think this is a reasonable inference given the evidence we have. We also talked about, well, has it changed over time? Has it been corrupted over time? Well, that's just about the chain of custody. And I think we've got more than enough reason. The one thing I'm most certain about is this third category. I'm good with the story the way it is. And then finally, is, is there some reason why they would lie to us? They would be so biased about this that they would want to lie to us. Well, if it is, tell me where it is. What is driving these folks to tell me the lie, to show me it? I'm willing to entertain the idea, but you've got to be reasonable. I don't see it. Now, do you see what I just did here? This is how every circumstantial case I've ever worked looks. This is that thing that we call death by a thousand paper cuts. And when I got to this point as an investigator, I said, okay, this is really like every case I've worked. What's keeping me from this? What is keeping me from wanting to believe this? What is keeping me from just, okay, look, so ask yourself, and anyone who talked to who has a problem in this area, just ask, is it really that you don't think there's enough evidence? Do you even know how much evidence there is and what kinds of categories those would be in anyway? Or is it you don't want there to be enough evidence? Because if it's the second category, I will sometimes ask people, hey, before I'll start, they'll ask me, well, why do you think you're, why are you a Christian? Well, before I answer that question, first of all, we can't do it on Twitter, right? Because it's, it's all that. Can't do that in 140 characters. So I need to know, are you really serious? Take me a couple hours to do this, but I'm willing to do it. Are you serious? I always ask this question. Hey, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? Would you become a Christian? Well, I don't think it's true. No, no. Just go with me for a second. If I could demonstrate, if, we, if it's true, and everyone agreed it's true, would you become a Christian? And they'll say, uh, I don't know. Well, okay, then it's not a head issue. Right? It's not about how much evidence I'm going to show you. If that's the case, it's about a heart issue. So you just don't want it to be, I get it, you don't want it to be true, I understand. But I always seem to ask that question. So when people ask me today, well, why are you a Christian? And I did this, there's a movie I did a couple years ago, well, last year, came out last year, called God's Not Dead 2. Did you guys see that movie? Don't, don't worry if you didn't see it. <laughs> Typical uh, Christian movie in some regards, right? But I mean, they asked me to be a part of it, so I did a scene in it. Okay, fine. And they kind of asked me this question on the camera. The, the, the other character playing this kind of accused me of only uh, making this case because I was a Christian. That's not where I was. I'm not a Christian because it works for me or because I want it to be true. I, wasn't have, I'm, I, I, I had no interest in Christianity. I, have, I don't have a family member who's a Christian. My dad is still a very committed atheist. It wasn't why. I wasn't trying to solve a problem. I wasn't trying to get sober to stop beating my wife. I wasn't doing those things. It doesn't work for me. I mean, think about how hard it is to be a Christian right now. Even in our country, which is pretty Christian favorable, right? It's no longer easy to be this. It's a lot easier to throw the dart against that wall and just go draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. And we do that all the time. I was doing that for a number of years. And I think I might have said this when I was here with you last. When I asked my, you know, my wife to think about our lives together, we were together for 18 years before either one of us became a Christian. And then we've been together about 20 since. Of those two groups of time, the first was always, she'll always tell you that, that was much easier. Because back then, the only God we had was us. How are you guys doing? Doing great. How do I know? Just ask me. <laughs> By my standard, I'm doing fantastic. 
I'm not a Christian for any of those reasons. I was not because I was raised that way, not because I was hoping for something good. I don't care about heaven and hell. Even now, it's hard for me to get my hands around those things. I've been an atheist for so many years. I still kind of think that way. On some, uh, if there was no heaven, I'd still be a Christian. You know why? Because I'm a Christian because it's true. That's it. It goes back to that thing I just made, that, that diagram I just, look, if it's true, it's true. And I would much rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. Now, the reason why I'm saying all this is because I get asked to come to this church, and that's my second time. And you know how many, you've had really, mostly because Cody, you've had really good apologists, uh, philosophers, people who, who you were probably taking classes with, right, at uh, Biola, who you've asked to come here and speak at this church. And most of you who have listened to those folks, that you had JP here, didn't you? Okay, JP Moran, all those guys, you're probably going, okay, well, whatever, whatever, whatever. Hey, let me tell you something. This is very rare that a church would even talk about the evidence, even care about, you're running an apologetics class right now, right? A group. Doing On Guard by William Lane Craig. Okay, like, blow your brains out, okay? I'm sorry, it's just like, so, it's like, am I right? Who's taking that class? You know how hard that stuff is, right? Why do we do this? Why are we torturing ourselves? Why are we doing all this? Because there's a, we have to do it. Because we are now in a place where if we don't do it, you won't even be here anymore. There are people right now, you're, I'm looking at the age in this room, there's actually a group of people even younger than you who are in high school and just entering college who really need to know, is this true? Because we are doing the numbers right now, and the number of people who enter a college walked away from the church already, walked away while they were still at home, walked away while they were in high school. No one even paid attention. No one even knew until they got to their freshman year. It's staggering. Now, all of you in this room have a chance to solve that problem. You do. Before you ever leave a room like this, because by the time you're like my age, you probably will be sitting in this room. You'll probably be sitting in a different room on, on, on the campus, right? Don't you leave this room until you take two people and put them in your seats. You know somebody who needs to know if it's true, who's younger than you who's already in high school, maybe just starting college. They're your younger sibling, your brother or sister. There's somebody you know from work. There's somebody you know from class. There's somebody you know in your neighborhood. If we care enough about this, I mean, look, I could tell you the stats. If you look at my podcast, I'll tell you my podcasts are divided between theology, politics, and sports, mostly sports. <laughs> it is. I mean, I got first take on here. I got uh, you know, undisputed. I've got uh, Colin Coward. I've got you name them all. I got them all on here. I listen to all of them. Tomorrow I'll be running. What will I be listening to? Really? How much time are you spending putting that stuff in your head? I spend a ridiculous amount of time putting sports in my head. That's got to stop. We got to change this. What you love is the stuff you're spending your time on. That's why I think I got to build this case. That's why I built these, these cases because I want. This to be what I love. And I want to know each piece of this really well, the same way I know every person who plays on the Packers. <laughs> we got to know it that well. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we want to be um, more committed to you. And we know that means that we've got to organize our time better. So would you help us to... Um, make you a priority again. Not just a priority when we come and we sing. Not just a priority at the times when we're gathered together. But would you, would you help us to be honest about our calendars. Help us to be honest about the time we spend when no one's looking. 
and the thoughts we think when we think we're alone. Would you help us to give those to you? We want you to be our Savior. Help, help us to allow you to be our Lord. We love you, Father, and we want to give this life to you. And we pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says? Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.